With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Throughout the state. 
I'm also welcoming back from last week's session uh, two of the shareholders in our Detroit office, Jacqueline Giffen and Gary Ankers, who decided to stick around in the event that any of our uh, listeners have questions regarding their presentation on investigations that they gave in the last session. So without further ado, I'm going to hop right into Michigan's Paid Medical Leave Act. Again, as I mentioned before, this went into effect uh, in March 2019. So although we're coming up on the one-year mark, uh, we are still seeing uh, a lot of questions from employers as they try to figure out uh, how to get into compliance with this act. There's not uh, too many states out there uh, across the country that have mandatory paid sick leave for their employees. Uh, so Michigan is joining, uh, is joining that group, though, and uh, it's something that employers need to be aware of uh, as they try to uh, wrap their hands around this new law. So first and foremost, the act covers employers with 50 or more employees uh, in the state of Michigan. Uh, one question we get frequently is, well, what if I have 48 employees in Ohio and two in Michigan? Our reading of the act is that you would still be a covered employee, or excuse me, employer under the act because you have 50 or more employees and at least one of them fall in uh, and work most of their time in the state of Michigan. <clears throat> now, the act sets out that all employees are covered and then proceeds to exempt about 12 or 13 categories of employees from coverage under the act. So the first that, uh, that you see come up on the list is that the act exempts overtime exempt employees. So that's your professionals, uh, executive, highly compensated employees from uh, accruing paid uh, medical leave under the act. The act also exempts employees covered by a collective bargaining agreement. The paid medical leave act also exempts employees who are uh, hired by a temporary help firm. So think if your business uh, if your business contracts with independent contractors to perform services for your company, you are not obligated to provide paid medical leave to those independent contractors. <clears throat> the paid medical leave act also uh, exempts employees who are employed for 25 weeks or fewer in a calendar year scheduled for uh, 20 for a job scheduled for 25 weeks or fewer. So think about uh, your seasonal help employees, uh, if you run a, a business uh, that's only open in the winter, like a, like a, a ski resort uh, where folks are only coming on for a short period of time, there's a chance that they may not be eligible for paid medical leave. And then the last and uh, perhaps most confusing exemption is uh, that the employees who worked on average fewer than 25 hours per week during the immediately preceding calendar year are not eligible for paid leave under the Act. The reason I say this is confusing is that employers have a tendency to read that exemption as folks who do not work 25 hours uh, per week are exempt. So most of, a lot of my, my part-time folks will not, will not be eligible for paid medical leave. It's not necessarily true. Again, the, the language specifically says during the immediately preceding calendar year. So if you, are, uh, if you have a new uh, employee 
who uh, has no immediately preceding calendar year work history, even if they're hired into a position that historically only works 20 hours a week, they may be eligible under the act until you have that immediately preceding calendar year work history, which you can then uh, reflect on and determine whether or not they meet that exemption. It's also important to note that employees become eligible at the commencement of their employment. With that said, uh, employers do not have to start permitting employees to use any earned medical leave until their 90th day of employment. So there is uh, somewhat of a probationary period worked into the act to the benefit of employers. <clears throat> there are a few ways in which employers can comply with the paid medical leave, uh, which, which I suppose I can refer to as the PMLA. Uh, the first being the accrual method. Under the PMLA, uh, employers can comply if they permit their employees who are eligible, again, that don't fall into any of those exemptions that I previously walked through, to earn one hour of paid medical leave for every 35 hours worked. And that's limited to one hour earned per calendar week. And the reason the, the act does that is so that there isn't a confusion about, well, uh, if I earn one hour for every 35 hours worked, but I work 40 hours, does that mean I earn one hour and change? No, the act specifically states that you earn one hour for every 35 hours worked, limited to one hour per calendar week. Under the accrual method, employees uh, can earn up to 40 hours per year. They can use for 40 hours of paid medical leave per year, and they can carry over up to 40 hours of paid medical leave into the next year. <clears throat> the other method of compliance is the front-loading method. Under the front-loading method, uh, an employer can uh, disregard any sort of accrual tracking or hours tracking and simply provide at least 40 hours of paid leave to eligible, employee, eligible employees at the beginning of a year. This can be prorated based on uh, an employee's date of hire. So if you're hired halfway through the year, you can, uh, if an employee is hired halfway through the year, the employer can front-load 20 hours, and that's compliant. Additionally, because the employer is front-loading hours, there's no carryover requirement. And there's also, uh, there's also no, um, there's no sort of worked-in cap. So once the employee, employee uses his or her 40 hours, that's it. Uh, they don't get any more until the next year. The Act also spells out specific reasons uh, for which leave can be used. These are often refers, referred to as covered uses. Um, and it, it's broken down into sick time uses and safe time uses. So you may also hear uh, the Paid Medical Leave Act uh, being described as a law that provides sick and safe time because it's not strictly uh, it's not strictly providing um, for covered reasons under uh, sick time or when someone's ill. It also is 
uh, providing uh, some, some leave for safety reasons, and we'll go through those. So under sick time uh, uses, uh, employees who are eligible and have uh, paid medical leave to use uh, can take time off for the mental or physical illness, injury, or health condition of themselves or a family member uh, to uh, receive a medical diagnosis, care, or treatment of a me mental or physical illness, injury, or health condition of a family member. Uh, they can also use this time uh, for preventive medical care appointments, so physical, uh, dentist appointments, uh, things of that nature. They can also use this time uh, for uh, medical care or psychological or other sorts of counseling uh, or physical injury uh, therapy, things of that nature. So uh, they can take time off for both mental and uh, physical treatment. Now on the safe time uh, portion of the covered uses, uh, employees may take time off to obtain services from a victim services organization. Uh, they also may use this time if they need to relocate due to domestic violence or sexual assault. Uh, further, if they need to obtain legal services relating uh, to, to domestic violence or sexual assault. Uh, also, if they need to participate in a civil or criminal proceeding relating uh, to or resulting from domestic violence or sexual assault. And again, this is for domestic violence or sexual assault against the employee themselves or their family member. And lastly, for public health emergencies. Uh, one question we uh, received frequently this winter, although we haven't had too much snow in Michigan this year, I probably just jinxed it for all of us. Um, we received a lot of questions about whether snow days constitute public health emergencies. There's no, there's no guidance from the state on that point yet. However, uh, looking at other states, um, we are inclined to advise employers that your run-of-the-mill snow day does, would not constitute a public health emergency. Uh, one thing that uh, employers want to be wary of is if an instance occurred like it did last year uh, when the governor uh, uh, issued a state of an emergency because the, the temperatures were so cold and, and shut down many state services, that may be, uh, that may be something uh, where you'd like an employer may want to reevaluate whether that falls into public health emergency and, and permit employee, employees to uh, use safe time uh, to avoid uh, uh, driving on the roads or, or braving uh, those kinds of conditions. But again, if, if, if employers were to permit the use of safe time for run-of-the-mill snow days, they would uh, they would likely see most of their uh, work staff uh, call in absent on one day for, for again, a simple snow day, and, and that's not how we view the act. Now, uh, the logical next step is, well, who's a family member? Uh, who, who, who constitutes a family member under the act? And, and it is defined. So uh, a biological, adopted, foster, or stepchild uh, would constitute uh, a family member. In addition, if you, or excuse me, if an employee has a child that the employee stands what's called in local parentis for, uh, that child constitutes a family member as well. Uh, that's a, a fancy Latin phrase, which essentially means that if an employee is standing in the place of a parent for a child, that that uh, child constitutes a family member. You may see this if a, a grandparent. Uh, is raising uh, a grandchild in the in the absence of of that child's uh, parents. Uh, 
another category of family member is gr uh, a grandchild, a grandparent, a biological adopted foster or step parent, a biological foster or adopted sibling, and a person to whom an employee is legally married. The PMLA is fairly employer friendly. There aren't too many uh, obligations uh, that are spelled out uh, outside of the, those front-loading and accrual compliance method, but I'll go over the few that do exist. If an employer requests verifying documentation from an employee to demonstrate that the time off was taken for a covered use, the employer must provide the employee at least three days to uh, give the employer that documentation. So. Uh, what an employer cannot do is say, uh, I saw you know I saw you took a day off uh, yesterday. I need a doctor's note by tomorrow. Um, that would be, violate the act. <clears throat> the other requirement is that employers must maintain records of their employees' paid medical leave use for at least one year. Uh, so in order to comply with that, we advise employers to mandate that when an employee is taking leave under the act for a covered reason, that they specify that they are taking leave for, uh, for a reason covered by the Paid Medical Leave Act instead of just generic time off. That will help uh, the employers maintain their records for at least one year and uh, remain in compliance with that requirement. But having said all that, the act does, uh, does state that employees must still abide by employers' usual and customary notice, procedural, and documentation requirements. So whatever you have as an employer in your employee handbook in terms of submitting requests uh, would still exist, uh, with the one exception being if an employee needed to take paid leave, paid medical leave on uh, little or no notice for a covered reason under the Act, uh, that uh, that would, uh, there must be an exception made for, for those reasons. <clears throat> Although I mentioned earlier that there were two ways of complying with the Paid Medical Leave Act, front-loading and accrual method, there's also this sort of pseudo-third way of complying, and that's what's referred to as the rebuttable presumption. Uh, the rebuttable presumption is listed in the Paid Medical Leave Act, and what it says is that an employer is in compliance if the employer provides at least 40 hours of paid leave to an eligible employee each year. So what they did in the law is uh, give employers an out who have already been uh, or already do uh, provide at least 40 hours of some kind of paid leave to their employees. Now, the only risk here that, that we see, or excuse me, I should say the biggest risk here is if an employer already provides 40 hours of, say, PTO or 40 hours of vacation time that's paid, um, it, it doesn't account for employees who need to use that time, again, on little or no notice. So if you're an employer out there that already provides uh, 40 hours of some sort of paid leave to their employees and think, I'm all set, you may want to, and we strongly recommend, that you reevaluate your policy and, and retrain your managers uh, so that they're aware that if an employee needs to use any of that 40 hours of PTO or vacation time, 
on a, an emergency uh, basis where they can't provide, say, two weeks notice or what may, what may be required under your current policy, that those employees are not being disciplined so long as the time is being taken for one of those covered uses under the Act. When moving forward uh, with compliance under the Act, if you're an employer who, who hasn't given this much thought, um, there, are, there are some considerations that we recommend. Uh, you know, first, uh, we recommend seeking a employment counsel, uh, reaching out to your uh, attorney, and, and making sure that uh, you're talking through all of uh, the potential implications of implementing a new policy. Um, again, that uh, the, the first question you may ask is, well, do we need do we need a new policy? Do we already offer 40 hours? Um, and, and, and the way are we the way that we're offering it is that compliant, or do we need to uh, revisit training uh, as to how this 40 hours of paid time is being administered? Uh, if you don't already provide at least 40 hours of paid time and and you you know again have at least 50 employees uh, with at least one working in Michigan um, you're going to want to consider whether it makes sense to go the front-loading method or the accrual method uh, a lot of employers choose the front-loading method because of the ease of administration uh, it's, it's frankly a lot easier to just say okay everyone who's eligible gets 40 hours of paid leave at the beginning of the year once you use it all that's it and, and just step back and, and just monitor uh, when, when folks uh, use their paid time for that record-keeping requirement. Alternatively, if you're an employer uh, that, uh, that is willing to, to put in uh, the administrative uh, attention that's required, maybe the accrual method makes more sense to you. Uh, maybe you have a high turnover rate and you don't want to be handing uh, every employee who walks in the door 40 hours of paid leave uh, at the beginning of uh, their employment. So uh, you could be saving money by going the accrual route uh, if you're willing, again, to take on that administrative burden. Uh, to my colleagues here who are monitoring the questions, do we get any questions on the Paid Medical Leave Act? No. no. Nothing yet? Okay. Well, in that case, uh, I'm going to let uh, Dina take over and uh, walk through a couple, couple issues regarding uh, marijuana in Michigan. Okay, so this is not super new information. The, medical, the Michigan Medical Marijuana Act has been in effect for quite a few years. However, we're still getting a few questions from employers on how the act affects them. And the short answer is it really doesn't. Um, the act legalized the use of medical marijuana. However, it is really just a defense, criminal prosecution, or adverse action by the state. Therefore, the act does not apply to private employers. You can still discipline or terminate, if you choose to, an employee for mar marijuana use or a positive drug test, even if the employee has a medical marijuana card. So to clarify, allowing an employee to use marijuana for a disability or any other medical condition is not considered a reasonable accommodation. So with marijuana-infused products becoming more and more popular, what we have been seeing um, are employees testing positive and then claiming that they were taking um, some over-the-counter CBD pill or using some marijuana-infused lotion and whatnot, um, and employers have been asking, what do you do in those circumstances? And it honestly doesn't matter, um, especially when there's no way to tell if an employee is being truthful. Just as long as your policy is clear that you can terminate for a positive drug test and make sure your policy is clear on that, just go ahead and follow your policy. 
that's all I have on that. Great. That's something that comes up frequently here, and although the, the answer may be pretty straightforward, uh, again, the questions keep coming in the door. So uh, not, uh, not too much to cover. Um, the next thing that we're going to jump into is garnishment law in Michigan. Uh, this is something that Dina and I handle relatively frequently in the Detroit office. Um, and, and I'll just say that the garnishment laws in Michigan are a headache for employers. And, and I'll explain why. So first, if you don't know what a garnishment is, it's, it's when uh, there is a, an order uh, requiring uh, an employer or a bank or some entity to withhold money from an individual. So from an employer standpoint, it's, uh, it's when you are ordered by the court to withhold a certain amount of one of your employees' paychecks. And this will typically come after a, a judgment is entered against that employee. So let's say the employee failed to pay a, a medical bill or um, make a car payment or take child support, something of that nature. Um, the, uh, the court will order them uh, to pay, and then that gets passed to you to actually withhold money from their paycheck to satisfy that judgment. So what you will receive as an employer is what's called a, a writ of garnishment in the mail, and it's going to look like a legal document, and there will be a, a court caption on the top, and the creditor will be on the left side, and on the right side will be your employee's name, and then as the employer, you will be named as a garnishee defendant. Now, again, the, the reason that these are such a pain for employers is that the law has very short time periods at the outset of these garnishment, garnishments during which employers have to take action. So first is that within seven days of receiving the writ in the mail, you have to provide a copy of it to that employee if that employee uh, uh, still, still works, works for you, or if they don't, then you have to just send it to their last known mailing address. The next is that within 14 days, you have to, as an employer, send in a garnishy disclosure to the court, the creditor, so the person who sent it to you, and the employee. Now, you can find the disclosure form online. If you just Google garnishy disclosure form Michigan, the, the Michigan courts actually have the form uh, that you can print out and fill out. I think it's, there's also a PDF version where you can just type in the PDF and you can answer the questions. Uh, there questions. There's also um, uh, instruction sheets to help you walk through that if, if you want to handle it on your own. Otherwise, you can reach out to your uh, employment counsel to assist you with that. But the purpose of the disclosure is primarily uh, to acknowledge that you received the writ, uh, it's to state whether you're obligated uh, to garnish the employee's wages. So, for example, if the if the if the uh, if the employee no longer if that former if the person no longer works for you, then you're not obligated to garnish uh, the, that employee's wages. If uh, another garnishment already exists, then uh, you may not have to garnish at all uh, as well. So. The biggest thing, though, is that you have to, as an employer, get that garnishment disclosure form out the door within 14 days. Uh, if you miss that deadline, there, there could be negative consequences, uh, which Dina will talk about in just a minute. Um, now, the second you, you, you uh, send out that garnishment disclosure form, you need to start withholding or garnishing the uh, employee's pay uh, as, as instructed to uh, by, the, by the writ. 
Now, although you're garnishing, you're not handing over the money to the creditor right away. You have to wait 28 days before you do that. And the reason being is that in those 28 days, if the employee thinks that the the writ of garnishment should have never been issued, then they get 28 days to file an objection to it. So you start withholding and you, you start garnishing, you hold that money, and then after that 28-day mark passes, then you can start releasing it to the creditor unless you hear otherwise from the court, like unless you see an objection come in and, and the court has to decide um, uh, what your obligations are as the employer. Um, as a general rule, you're typically not going to garnish more than 25% of the employee's disposable earnings. Um, the other thing I want to mention before I'm going to toss it to Dina is at the top of the at the top of the garnishment form, so the writ of garnishment, it'll say periodic or non-periodic. As an employer, 99% of the time you're going to get a, a, a periodic garnishment. If you get a non-periodic garnishment, it's probably an error. A periodic garnishment is, is what you think uh, a garnishment is. It's, it's where there's this uh, routine withholding of an employee's wages. A non-periodic garnishment is something that uh, a bank might receive, so a one-time uh, one-time grab out of a person's bank account. So as an employer, you're likely going to see a, a periodic uh, garnishment. I would like to take this opportunity to thank the Littler team for providing us with such valuable employment law information. Um, please, we were not able to actually get in everyone's questions that you sent over, so we're going to actually end this from this podcast and take this over onto my social media page. Um, there on LinkedIn, if you're not connected with me, connect with me um, at Felicia G. Harris on, on LinkedIn. Also take the opportunity to connect with us on our business page, our company page, which is Everything HR One. We will be providing you with a lot of information throughout this entire year on our company LinkedIn page. So if you're not connected with us on our company page, take the opportunity to do that too. But more importantly, I really want you to take the opportunity to reach out to the Littler team if you do have ongoing employment questions or issues that's what they do. They are employment law attorneys. There is a very big difference between an employment law attorney and a business attorney. An employment law attorney is only deals with things that's concerning employment. And so they will be able to provide you with much more valuable information than your business attorney. And we've talked about the difference between the two in, in other podcasts. But their phone number, if you like to reach out to them, is 313-202-3170. Also, be sure as you see them on LinkedIn as we're going over back and forth these questions, be sure to connect with them too as well um, and on their social media channels and pages because they also will be able to provide you with very valuable, timely information that you're able to incorporate into your business. Obviously, you know, I am a huge champion of small business owners because I'm one myself, but one of the things they do not provide us with enough information on is employment law. We are HR professionals. We are not employment attorneys. And so we are very quick to tell you when something crosses that line over to where you need an employment law attorney, most likely the first ones I'm going to think of is Littler because that's what they do. And so again, 
thank you guys over at Littler for joining us this morning again. And we will see everyone right on over to my LinkedIn page there on uh, Felicia G. Harris at LinkedIn. So connect with me and join us over there. Have a great day, and I look forward to seeing everyone next week on the Owner to Owner podcast. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.